Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Thanks for your support on Patreon, Catherine Grasso. You might know Catherine as one of Queen Elizabeth's ladies-in-waiting. She helped poor Queen Bess stay calm during the heady days of the Armada in 1588 when the Spanish were approaching. Of course, she did none of these things. But if you would like me to lie about you, then make sure you head over to Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. Or click on that link in the description below. More on that later or some other time. But for now, I hope you enjoy this latest episode of the Thirty Years War. This is episode 16. Hello and welcome my lovely history friends and patrons. I hope you're doing well in these difficult times and that you're ready to take about 40 minutes out and just basically check your brain at the door, well to some degree at least, and listen to this new installment of a conflict which was raging from 1618 to 1648. As we've of course learned in the last 15 episodes, you need to start the story somewhere other than 1618 and that's what we've really done here. You guys seem to have really enjoyed the background, and it's taken us a long time to get to this point, to that symbolic, famous moment when the Bohemians threw those dastardly Habsburgs out the windows of Prague's Hradjin Castle. As far as I'm aware, you can visit Prague's Hradjin Castle today. Well, maybe not right now because of COVID and everything, but once this is all blown over, I do encourage you to go to Prague and check out that castle and see for yourself exactly how history was made 400 years ago. It's certainly on my bucket list, and it's probably on yours at this point. So where are we in the story? These two-week breaks can sometimes be a little bit jarring, but as we said the last time, we concluded our background investigation into the Thirty Years' War, and shock horror, we're now as ready as we'll ever be to begin our analysis of the early phases of this conflict. How did the Third Bohemian Revolt in a decade, no, seriously, I'm not kidding, escalate into a three-decade-long conflict, dragging in all manner of powers and destroying vast portions of the continent. Why do trains keep going by as I'm recording? The answer to this and so many other questions will be found in this episode. What ingredients were present in summer 1618 which had been absent before? And how were Bohemia's neighbours going to react to the news that, once again, the lands of the Habsburgs had taken up the standard of revolt? Was this just business as usual? Would the Habsburgs be able to 
find some way of making the Bohemians happy and ensure that everything just returned to normal. Could they do it? Of course, no they could not. They super could not, in fact, as we're about to discover. These are important questions for all of us to wrap our heads around, but I don't want to take any more time here in this intro, so I'm just going to jump right into this eventful period in history, as I take you to Bohemia in the early summer of 1618. The deed done, and their masters defenestrated, it remained to be seen what the Bohemians would do next. For the third time in a decade, Bohemia's populace had risen against the Habsburgs, and it was entirely possible that, just like the previous two occasions, Habsburg platitudes and concessions would be sufficient to bring Bohemia down from the ledge. On the other hand, there was a great deal of fear and anger swirling around in the kingdom, and a radical portion of the country were already plotting to evict the Habsburgs altogether. Indeed, we have to start this story out by pointing that different shades of opinion existed within the Bohemian country, with varying degrees of radicalisation accompanying this divide. Depending on whom one asked, you see, the revolt was launched either against the pervasive influence of the Jesuits, of the dogmatic interfering of the Catholic regents, of the Habsburg family's worst elements, epitomised by Ferdinand, or all three. Some radicals refused to recognise Ferdinand as King of Bohemia at all, and sought to bypass his authority and petition Emperor Matthias directly. If the Bohemians were confused, then it's understandable that foreign opinion was entirely unsure what to think. Was this merely another instance of the Habsburgs losing control of their hereditary lands, or was it something more sinister and unsettling? The revolt's energy and fury would have to be harnessed and the cause explained before the enterprise ran out of steam, and with this in mind, the Bohemian rebels gathered the three estates of the kingdom together, that being the nobility, the knights, and the peasantry, and each of these estates appointed twelve directors from each of these segments. This group of 36 men was to form Bohemia's provisional government, and one of its most significant acts for historians was the decision to write down the reasons for the revolt in a bid to gain foreign support. I, for one, am quite glad they did this because it resulted in a document being preserved to this day. This document that's been handed down to us as a result, the Apologia, was surely a litmus test of the Empire's susceptibility to the Bohemian message. Would they listen? But it wasn't just aimed at the Empire, it was also aimed at foreign capitals. Paris, London, The Hague and Italian notables like Venice and Savoy, who had supported the Bohemians in the past, could well be open to helping these rebels out. The Apologia justified Bohemians' grievances, placed them in context, appeased those that feared all sectarian conflicts would now be let loose, and urged the recipients of this document to aid the Bohemian people in the fight against oppression and injustice. What the rebels appeared to want at this early point in the revolt was not necessarily the removal of the Habsburg dynasty from Bohemia, but a proper apology from Emperor Matthias, in addition to several 
guarantees. Let's consult this document now to see exactly what it was that they wanted and why they had flown to revolt in the first place. As the Apologia put it, For a number of years, all three estates and inhabitants of the kingdom have faced, suffered and endured all kinds of complaints and hardship, both in political as well as in ecclesiastical matters. These were caused and instigated by evil, turbulent clergy and laity, most notably those of the Jesuit sect, whose aim, writings and endeavours have always been directed at fraudulently subjugating not only His Majesty, but also all Protestant inhabitants and estates of the entire kingdom to the Roman See, a foreign power. You'll note the main focus of the rebels' vitriol here. The emperor was blameless, so it seemed, and was as vulnerable as the Bohemians had been to the Jesuit schemes. Much like they had blamed the Catholic regents for the repressive religious policies before 1618, here the Bohemians blamed the Jesuits for the actions authorised by the emperor and undertaken with some enthusiasm by the new Bohemian king, Ferdinand. Indeed, the Apologia continued to note that the enemies of the king, land and general peace have not desisted from striving to negate the peace that was so desired and confirmed, and to further their evil, extremely dangerous and pernicious intentions towards this kingdom and our successors. It wasn't done yet. The Apologia continued explaining the shocking defenestration that had occurred two days before this document was written, by recalling how the defensors had been ordered to disband when they had gathered earlier in the year to discuss the worsening religious climate in the Bohemian country. It was bad enough that the genuine grievances of the defensors had been ignored, but that they should also be ordered to disband and forbidden from ever gathering in such an assembly again. These were rulings which were directly contrary to the letter of majesty, that document, that concession, which Matthias had granted to them a few years before. Again, though, it was written that, instead of granting our humble petition, the defensors were condemned without any hearing by his imperial majesty at the instigation of his enemies. Yet again, the defensors were unwilling to point the finger at Ferdinand, their new king, or at Matthias, the Holy Roman Emperor. They sought to heap blame onto the people who acted in the Habsburgs' name instead, in the forlorn hope that Matthias would step in and order the Bohemians' grievances to be addressed. It had been Matthias, after all, that had marched to the rescue of the Bohemians in 1612, and he had sworn to uphold the Letter of Majesty before being crowned king. The explanation for why Matthias had been outmaneuvered by his minions in this regard, and had been recently unable to protect the Bohemian people, was, according to the Apologia, that certain enemies of the king's administration had acted as destroyers of justice and the general peace, and also because they disrespected the offices and positions they held, and instead used them evilly to weaken the authority of his imperial majesty, our king and lord, and to abolish the general peace of this kingdom of Bohemia. So, according to the Bohemians, these dishonest individuals had reduced the powers of the Bohemian king, and had gone into business for themselves to effect a great and terrible change in their country. This was what the defensors had moved to destroy when they threw those regents out of the windows of the Hradchin castle. 
Yet these defensers and the new provisional government, which they had established under the 36 directors, I know, defensers, directors, what's the difference? But basically they established a provisional government. That's the guts of what you need to know. But they didn't wish for Matthias or, so it would seem, King Ferdinand to mistake their intentions or actions. And the apologia continued... At our assembly at Prague Castle, we have established a defence system for the entire kingdom, for the good of his imperial majesty, and this kingdom, our beloved fatherland, as well as to protect our women and children from all danger. And, through this action, we do not intend anything against his imperial majesty, as our most gracious king and lord, nor desire inconvenience for those Catholics who are our dear friends and peaceful people. For it is commonly recognised and known that no other secular or ecclesiastical person will be harmed by this action, or will any unrest result, but instead a good peace will be maintained in the cities of Prague and throughout the kingdom. Accordingly, we dare hope that His Imperial Majesty, our gracious King and Lord, will not otherwise interpret our actions, nor give credence to other contrary reports about us. Instead, we are of firm hope that, considering the reasons explained above and the sufficiently described crimes of the aforementioned persons, all will see that it was not our intention, nor, it is in the slightest, to act against his most gracious imperial majesty, king and lord, those of the Roman religion or the agreements made with them, and will not only excuse this, but will like us also assist in preserving the common freedoms, territorial privileges, and all that serves mutual love and unity. These were, by all accounts, very high-minded and ambitious aims. Hopeful, you might say. Naive, you might also say. The apologia concluded with a plea for Emperor Matthias to excuse us to the entire world. In other words, to explain to Europeans that the Bohemian people didn't want to depose their king, but that they wished instead to receive some guarantees of the rights they had previously enjoyed, and to be entitled to defend themselves until these guarantees were given. Yet, the rebels had already made two grave mistakes. First, his imperial majesty referred to Matthias, the Holy Roman Emperor, whom the rebels seemed to think had their interests at heart. Whether the rebel leadership sincerely believed that Matthias had been effectively manipulated by his intolerant advisers or not, is not as important as the fact that Matthias would certainly have revoked the letter of majesty if he had at all been able since the concessions had been made by his brother under duress in 1609, Matthias had been keen to undo them, but he had never had the opportunity. Matthias was not the stalwart ally of Bohemian Protestants, which the rebels seemed to think he was. He was instead a Catholic Habsburg, and he wished to see the old faith return to Bohemia just as much as Ferdinand did. Hence why Matthias worked so closely with Melchior Cleasel in the past, to undermine Protestant influence in Bohemia and improve the situation for the Catholics. Second, and another thing that Matthias was not, was the King of Bohemia. Something which can be observed from the Apologia was a total avoidance of addressing their actual king. His Imperial Majesty referred to the Holy Roman Emperor. The rebels, evidently, intended to bypass and ignore their new king and get rid of his authority in favour of his cousin. The avoidance of Ferdinand could be explained by a distrust of his more zealous character, but also by an expectation that Matthias would be more likely to listen now since he had listened in the past. From Vienna, the bypassing of Ferdinand could just as easily be construed as an act of defiance, 
a deliberate snub against the king these same bohemians had only recently elected. It is significant that their grievances were addressed to the emperor rather than their king, whose subjects they had technically just thrown out the windows of Prague's castle, and it is doubly significant that it was Emperor Matthias rather than Ferdinand who replied to their apologia. The ailing Matthias evidently wished to clear up any potential confusion. He stood by his cousin, the king of Bohemia, Ferdinand, and the government in Bohemia which ruled in Ferdinand's name, and he would not approve of the Bohemians' actions, nor would he humour them with further negotiations. In his reply, written on the 18th of June, 1618, Matthias said, Dear subjects, you know what happened to our regents, secretary and dear loyal subjects on Wednesday the 23rd of May, and subsequently in the Bohemian Chancellery, in our palace and residence in Prague, which should be a place of the highest respect and security. And all this because it has been alleged that the letter of majesty and the free exercise of religion will be abolished. We want to make it clear to you through this open letter that we have no intention of rescinding the letter of majesty or the agreement between the religions, still less want anyone else to do this, despite what others among the estates of our Bohemian kingdom may have said. Moreover, we have always intended and still intend to preserve all the estates' privileges, liberties, letters of majesty, deed recesses and treaties. Anyone who claims otherwise slanders us before God and the world. Rest assured, dear obedient, loyal and true estates of our Bohemian kingdom, and do not give credence to such falsehoods. On the surface, then, this extract reads like more of the same for the Habsburgs in historical context. So it seems here they were trying once more to talk the Bohemians down from their metaphorical ledge. It would have been an easy enough narrative to construct. The radical Bohemians, once again in revolt due to their paranoia and anxiety, rose in revolt for the third time in less than ten years against a benign regime, only to cause the very calamity which they claimed to fear. By rising up, by hiring soldiers, by arming themselves, they forced the Habsburgs to take action, and therefore to suppress their revolt with brute force, lest the region sank into banditry and desolation. Indeed, the example from 1611-12, to 12, when Archduke Leopold had marched with his troops through Bohemia, had testified to the damage which a ravenous army could inflict on an unsuspecting populace, as they carted off and seized everything which wasn't nailed down. Here, it seemed, the troubled Matthias was urging the Bohemians to disperse, and not to fear a non-existent threat, so that the waste and pillage from before could be avoided. Matthias, so this picture of events would portray, had learned from the past, whereas the Bohemians had not. If we were to dig just a little deeper, though, then we can deduce from the outset that the anxieties of the Bohemians were quite justified. In the first place, the Habsburgs had worked to chip away at the religious freedoms and influence of the majority Protestant population ever since Matthias took over as King of Bohemia. These processes only accelerated over 1617-18, when censorship, the alienation of land to the clergy, and the actual destruction of some Protestant churches all took place. Thus, angered, the Bohemians had sought 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Redress. They didn't get it, and they flew into revolt. In some respects, the Bohemians were merely following the script which had worked in 1609 and 1612. On those occasions, a show of force had preserved the religious and political independence of the Bohemian people. Here in 1618, the Bohemians were trying to make lightning strike for the third time. We also know that Matthias, and especially Ferdinand, genuinely did want to revoke the Letter of Majesty, and that Matthias would have done so if he had been able. Ferdinand's conscience was so haunted by granting these concessions to Protestants that he had to be reassured by his confessors on the understanding that by confirming the Bohemians' religious rights, he was telling them a lie which he would, in good time, expose. Ferdinand was not acting in good faith, and he searched for the right opportunity to transform Bohemia just as he had transformed his native Styria in Inner Austria. Neither Ferdinand nor Matthias were innocent of the charges levelled against them by the more radical Bohemians. The problem was the absence of real evidence at this stage, detailing the extent of the Habsburgs' plans for reimagining Bohemia. Since many couldn't bring themselves to believe that the Habsburgs would so deliberately infringe upon their rights, the Bohemians remained divided at a critical time, with a significant portion of the country plainly unwilling to go all the way, in deposing the Habsburgs. For the first year of the revolt, then, much work would have to be done to liaise between the different segments of Bohemian society and to co-opt the varied opinions into a workable government. Since the Habsburgs denied the existence of any plot to remove the Letter of Majesty and revoke the Bohemians' religious freedoms, Matthias inserted in his letter several stern warnings for the Bohemians to disperse, lest they would invite a Habsburg response. Matthias did note his desire to return to Prague and clear up these misunderstandings with God's help. However, due to ill health on his part, the emperor promised instead to send capable and prominent individuals. Matthias elaborated on the Habsburg position with the following extract, which began as conciliatory and ended with a stiff warning of doom to all those that failed to avail of this chance 
to repent. This message, straight from the emperor himself, read as follows. Since no enemy threatens us as Bohemian king, nor the three estates and all inhabitants, there are no constitutional grounds to raise soldiers to defend the country, and thus no grounds for anyone, whoever they might be, to use the territorial privileges, letters of majesty, ordinances, freedoms, or laws to justify arming. Accordingly, we graciously order you to disband the soldiers you have recruited to prevent further damage, expense, and ruin of the common man. Furthermore, no more troops are to be recruited, and the militia is to stand down. All subjects of either faith are to stop attacking each other by word and deed, and instead to deal with one another peacefully as friends. We do not doubt that the loyal estates will obey these orders. We will stop our recruiting, that was in response to yours, as soon as all the soldiers have been discharged in the Kingdom of Bohemia and the militia stood down. We want to spare our loyal subjects the damage and expense that soldiers cause. If our gracious and paternal warnings and our just orders and instructions are ignored and the soldiers and militia are not immediately disbanded in the Kingdom of Bohemia, we will be forced to accept that order and justice are being disregarded. We will be left with no choice but to take the necessary measures to maintain our authority with the help of the Almighty, by whose grace we are your rightful king and master. It will be obvious to all that war and unrest bring great inconvenience, hardship and misery to the poor people. We testify before God and the entire world that we have given no grounds for this situation and are entirely innocent. Those who heed our royal order and remain obedient and do not support the unruly, who will not receive another warning, are assured of our royal grace, protection and goodwill. By this point, in late June 1618, the Bohemians had already recruited 4,000 mercenaries, a number which was to triple by the autumn. These mercenaries were an invaluable temporary solution to the intractable problem of a divided populace and unenthused peasantry. Problems personified by the uninspiring result of the militia call-up in Bohemia. According to the Letter of Majesty, every tenth peasant and every eighth burgher or merchant were eligible for military service and taxes due for the Habsburg would be eagerly redirected to pay for this kind of a force. Disappointingly for the Bohemians' directory government, though, so few men materialised as a result of the call-up that a reliance on mercenaries and later foreign armies was to become accepted policy. The revolt thus could not be accused of being a nationalistic one, but during the murky initial summer months of 1618, this didn't make it any less threatening to the Habsburgs, nor, for that matter, did it make it very different in character to previous Bohemian revolts. We're going to continue with our Bohemian story in just a bit, but first I want to enlighten you about something that's quite exciting. I often post things on social media, but I'm aware that a lot of you aren't plugged into those channels, and that's fine, you don't have to be, but you may have missed something quite exciting, and I'd like to enlighten you about it right now. You see, I've been kind of going out of control with the production of new t-shirts, and I've got two really cool ones that I think you guys will really enjoy. They are both, unsurprisingly, Bismarck-themed, to kind of celebrate what we recently did with the Bismarck Party. And if you're interested in looking at them, then click on the link in the description below, which will take you to the shop. I'm in the process of reforming the shop and changing it around a bit, because I am paying for that shop existing, and I'm not like other podcasters who have Shopify or anything like that, And that's not to say that Shopify is bad or that those other podcasters themselves are bad, but I just like to do things my own way and have complete control. 
which I realised is somewhat Bismarckian in and of itself. But I digress. One of these t-shirts has a picture of Bismarck's great face on it. It's a black and white t-shirt and it just says make history on the front of it with Bismarck's face. The other is Bismarck's face again, but it's a navy t-shirt. It's a little bit more cartoony and it has the quote, I have beaten them all on it. So if either of those sound all that good to you, then head on over to the shop and check that out. As I am a one-man show, or a one-man army, depending on whom you ask, I will be fulfilling these orders personally for you. And in the process of doing that, I can, of course, post these items with a lot of love. So if you'd like me to do that, if you'd like to get your hands on some nice new merchandise, if you want a t-shirt for the summer, then head on over to our shop by clicking on the link in the description below. Or head over to wdfpodcast.com forward slash shop, and I'm sure you'll be able to find your way from there. Purchasing items like these helps keep this podcast going, and it also spreads the word in a really cool, some might say, fashionable way. You'll be able to walk around your daily life with Bismarck's face emblazoned upon you, so what more could you want? Anyway, let's get back to the story. The issue for the Bohemian rebels, even after signing their apologia and waiting eagerly for the Emperor's response, was the fact that they had no real leader. There was no unifying voice that emerged to lead the Bohemian people, or overcome the divisions, or co-opt the different aims of the populace. The historian Peter H. Wilson has remarked that this lack of a leader actually prevented the Bohemian Revolt from transforming into the Central European equivalent of the Dutch Revolt, since no William of Orange was at hand in Prague as there had been at The Hague. Indeed, as we've seen, the rebels couldn't decide themselves whether the Habsburg dynasty should be removed or whether the revolt should merely serve as another message to the emperor to improve their lot and reinforce their guarantees. These divisions among the Bohemian people were extended to those few Bohemian Protestant noblemen, radicals and moderates who couldn't decide how best to harness the energy and passions in the aftermath of the defenestration. At the same time, though, it should be added that notwithstanding their lack of a leader, the Bohemians managed to hold their country together with a provisional government that could paper over the cracks. But this effort couldn't last. Count Thurn was arguably the most popular and visible of all the radicals, but he did not make any concerted effort to seize power. Without a centralised authority issuing commands, neither Bohemia nor the outlying provinces in Moravia, Silesia or Lusatia could mount an effective defence. Ill omens were making themselves felt almost as soon as the provisional government had been established, for centres of Catholic resistance existed in those townships and fortresses where pockets of the old faith had remained intact. The most important of these was Pilsen, and as long as it held out, it made a lie of the Bohemians' claims to be acting as a united front. Thus, Pilsen was designated as one of the militia's first targets, and the toleration which had been proclaimed was notably violated by a decree on the 9th of June, which demanded that all Jesuits leave the country. On the 18th of June, as we've just read out earlier, Emperor Matthias issued his response to the Bohemians' apologia, and the standoff was guaranteed. The Habsburgs couldn't afford to look weak and bow to the demands of the rebels, for a third time no less, and the Bohemians couldn't bring themselves to trust this dynasty, which they believed worked in secret to undermine their liberties. If the Bohemians were to keep their revolt alive, they would have to impress upon the Habsburgs the seriousness of their intentions and the danger they could pose to their enemies. For this to happen, 
the Bohemian Estates would have to band together, and the 36 directors who were running this provisional government would have to put aside their differences. If these two requirements were lacking, then the rebels could also count on a further invaluable resource, the promise of foreign aid, based on the same branching set of international contacts which had been established in the previous decade. The first source of support could be found very close to home indeed. While the crown was bohemian, this crown and the kingdom which accompanied it actually incorporated the aforementioned provinces of Silesia, Moravia and Lusatia in a form of confederation. All four provinces had their own estates or assemblies and they all maintained a dogged determination for freedom of action in local affairs. If the rebels were to be successful in whatever aims they agreed upon, the neighbouring provinces of Bohemia would have to be brought on side. Otherwise, this kingdom of Bohemia would fragment into its four provinces, and through these fragmented borders, Habsburg soldiers would invade. One can imagine the paralysing sense of dismay which accompanied the news in mid-June that the Moravians were recruiting a force of 3,000 men not to help the Bohemians, but to maintain their own neutrality, to reduce banditry, and to help the Habsburgs if they approached. Since Moravia was along the southern border of Bohemia, near to Austria, the permeability of the Bohemian kingdom from the very beginning was plain for all to see. For all its problems, though, the rebels didn't despair in this grave hour. Instead, they moved to strike with the limited forces at their disposal. Count Thurn was tasked with commanding the bulk of the forces, while he sent subordinates to accomplish other limited tasks, like reducing the remaining Catholic towns. Despite the reluctance of the entirety of the kingdom to become involved, these provinces also neglected to send forces against the Bohemian rebels, who achieved their first true success in late November 1618, once Pilsen was taken. The siege and storming of that town was accompanied by a sight which was to become all too familiar in the months to come. Ernst of Mansfeld, a mercenary commander known for his ability to raise an army and make the most effective use of his paymaster's funds, had arrived at Pilsen with a couple of thousand Swiss mercenaries. These men were veterans of the previous Italian campaigns, and they travelled with the blessings of the Duke of Savoy, a known rival of the Habsburgs. After fewer than six months then, the Bohemian Revolt had been inflamed and exacerbated by foreign intervention, and not for the last time. After much petitioning and no small amount of intimidation, the rebels gained Silesian support and 3,000 soldiers were added to the bank of manpower. This influx of new recruits, combined with the success at Pilsen and the arrival of Mansfeld, moved Thurn to approve of a daring new tactic, divide and conquer. Thurn would march to Moravia to compel the estates there to join the Bohemian cause, while Heinrich Schlick, a man who was a moderate Protestant bohemian by all accounts, but also no leader of men as well, would take charge of another front. Schlick's inability to lead and his unsuitability for this position was demonstrated by the lack of preparations and discipline which hounded Schlick's campaign, this campaign being a march to Vienna. Schlick would never make it, instead his forces were so reduced and depleted by the weather that he was forced to retreat before the weather became insufferable. Vienna had been saved from the revolt, at least for the moment, and the approach of winter seemed to promise a respite. If the Habsburgs wanted to be taken seriously though, they couldn't just sit back and allow the Bohemians to wander around, they would have to engineer some kind of response in the new year of 1619, 
Otherwise, Europe would watch on as their hereditary lands abandoned the Habsburg family one by one. On the 20th of March 1619, a critical event happened which had less to do with the military and more the political. Emperor Matthias, long-suffering, long-ailing and long-planning to make way for his cousin, died. This death of the emperor signalled that a turning point of sorts had been arrived at. For nigh on a year, you see, the Bohemians had insisted that their revolt was not against the Habsburgs per se, but against their malicious agents, and perhaps against their new Bohemian king. Matthias's death meant that Ferdinand would succeed his cousin as emperor, and once that happened, the Bohemians would be unable to hide from the severity of their mission. For the Bohemian rebels, it would be a turning point, because there would be no turning back. And that is not to say that Ferdinand refused to offer any terms. In fact, just before Matthias's death, the two camps had been preparing to assemble under Saxon mediation for talks. However, the mood was soured by the decision by some in the rebel camp to view Archduke Albert, who was then governing the Spanish Netherlands, as the rightful heir to the Holy Roman throne, and not Ferdinand. By mid-April 1619, all pretenses to the contrary had been forcibly abandoned. The rebels were now in open revolt, and whether the majority liked it or not, this rebellion was aimed at nothing less than the total destruction of Habsburg rule in Bohemia. Moravia was dealt with by a determined invasion on the 18th of April, with a great portion of the Moravian army defecting to the rebels, and the leading moderates that counselled peace were ejected. Any remaining undecided elements in Bohemia, Count Thurn hoped, would be persuaded by another invasion launched against Vienna. If the Austrian Habsburg capital was to fall to the rebels, then the dynasty's hold on the people's hearts and minds would surely be toppled with it. It was a daring plan, which came stunningly close to success. By late May 1619, Count Thurn's forces had reached the outskirts of Vienna, and it was correctly believed that Ferdinand himself had no soldiers on hand to relieve whatever siege the rebels might engage in. With success apparently near at hand, some Protestants on the Vienna town council had conspired with the rebels to divide the spoils, a decision made easier by the news a few weeks beforehand that Upper Austria's estates had elected to join with the Bohemians in revolt. With the Kingdom of Bohemia as united as it would ever be against the Habsburgs, with Ferdinand shut in and apparently friendless in his palace, and with confirmed reports of Transylvania, a Hungarian vassal of the Ottoman Empire, also prepared to help out the prospects for the new King of Bohemia and perhaps soon-to-be Holy Roman Emperor Ferdinand appeared grave indeed. Next time, we'll see exactly how the Austrian Habsburgs managed to cope with this situation, and how, against all odds, they survived. Until then though, my name is Zach, and this has been the 16th episode of the 30 Years War. Thanks so much for listening, history friends and patrons, I really appreciate it, and I'll be seeing all of you soon. Imagine. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.